This is Romans 6, verses 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death. That as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died... He died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, we do ask that you would speak. Speak to us. Lord, we need to hear from the living God, and we need to know how we might join him, join the Lord Jesus in his life, in his death, in his glory. May you open our eyes to see it this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. In 1968, the British Broadcasting Corporation recorded an interview for TV with an author whose work would go on to be acclaimed as the greatest literary accomplishment of the 20th century. That work was, of course, The Lord of the Rings. And the author was Oxford philology professor J.R.R. Tolkien. At Oxford, Tolkien had gathered around him a group of friends who loved stories. They loved stories and they loved reading stories aloud in their original languages, like Old Norse. Uh, out of a love for stories, Tolkien learned Latin, French, and German from his mother. And while at school, he learned Middle English, Old English, Finnish, Gothic, Greek, Italian, Spanish, Welsh, Medieval Welsh as well as Old Norse. Not many people give their time anymore to extinct languages, just so they can read original stories in those languages. 
And that's one of the reasons why people don't write stories like Tolkien did anymore. Perhaps more than anyone who's ever lived, Tolkien could speak with experience and authority concerning stories and what made them great. And here is what he said in that 1968 BBC interview. He said this. He said, when it comes to any large story, stories that capture and hold our attention, any truly human stories, they are always about one thing. Always about one thing. Do you know what it is? One thing. Always about death. Death. Any truly great stories are ultimately about death. The threat of death, the inevitability of death, the unexpected deliverance from death. Now, on a beautiful chaos Sunday, when we have our kids present here with us, this feels like a rather heavy way to begin a sermon. It's uh, kids, all great stories about death, right? It feels heavy. But let me lighten that up a little by giving you some Walt Disney illustrations, kids. Uh, and you'll see this is true. Kids, have you ever seen the Disney Pixar film Up? Do you know why your parents were crying during the first 10 minutes of that movie? It's because the first 10 minutes of the film are about death. It's about death. In Carl Fredrickson's story, we're confronted with death in a way that we all can relate. Ever seen Disney's Tangled? What's it about? It's about a villain who's striving to cheat death and an unlikely hero who dies but is brought back to life. There's a resurrection from the dead. Sorry, spoiler. But maybe, maybe for you, Disney animation is, isn't your thing. You've grown up a bit. Uh, for you, a great story now is Star Wars. Right, kids? Star Wars. You've seen them all. What's the reoccurring threat in Star Wars? Right? Isn't it the Death Star? And aren't there heroes you root for who are willing to face death? in order to save others from death. Han Solo acts like he doesn't care, but he really does. And we like him for it. Teenagers, what's the best book you had to read in high school? For me, it was Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. Did you have to read that? A Tale of Two Cities. What was that story about? It was about death, wasn't it? It's about facing death during the French Revolution. It's about facing the guillotine with a faith stronger than death. It's about Sidney Carton sitting by the sin, thinking about Jesus and the resurrection. You know, I've never shed a tear for a fictional character before, but my 16-year-old self did. Right then, and I did it again at the book's end. Why? Because if you read the book, you know what it's about. You know why. It is a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest I go to than I have ever known. Tolkien was right. All truly great stories are about death. The ever-present threat of death, the ever-hoped-for defeat 
of death. And we find present in all great stories, what we find present there, talking about death, what we find present in all great stories, we find in spades present in the gospel story. However well the other great stories deal with death, the very best they can do is only dimly reflect how Jesus' story deals with death. Not only does the story of Jesus deal with death better than any other story, which alone is remarkable, isn't it? Given how many stories there are in the world. But unlike those imaginary stories, this story actually happens. It actually happens in the primary world, in the real world. The gospel offers us a real world story with real historical events, with real historical places, with real historical people. People who started a movement that radically changed the Roman world of their day. A real movement that has outlasted the Roman world. The empire fell. It has outlasted every empire since. That this story about death is better than all the made-up ones, is remarkable. But what makes it a hundred times more remarkable is that it's actually true. It's actually true, which makes it more than remarkable. It makes it unmissable. This is the story you cannot ignore. It is a story that no one should miss out on. Because in addition to being the best story, dealing with death, and a true story, taking place in the primary world, this story has something else going for it. This story changes you. It changes you. It turns on its head how you see death. This story actually changes your life because, unlike the other good stories, you actually become a participant in this story. Your very identity is bound to the hero of this story. So much so that his death becomes your death. His victory becomes your victory. All of this, our participation in the story, is pictured for us in baptism. In baptism. We witnessed this morning uh, Matthew. And Boston, what we witnessed in them is a visible display of their participation in the great story of death's defeat. We're not making any of this up. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he clearly spells out all these connections for us. And as we look at the beginning of Romans chapter 6 today, we're going to see five ways that baptism pictures our participation in the gospel stories. If you ever wondered what baptism symbolizes, what it's all about, you came on a great Sunday, folks. I'm glad you're here. You came on a great Sunday because the Apostle Paul is about to pull back the curtain and reveal what baptism is all about. Here are five things every baptism is communicating. If you're taking notes, here's point number one. First, baptism pictures our participation in Christ's death. Baptism pictures our participation in Christ's death. We see that in verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? If God's grace toward us is so lavish, can't we just live any way we want? Can't we just do anything we want to do? Noah says no. He's right. No, we can't. We can't just do anything we want to do and ask for forgiveness later. Both the religious and the non-religious non-Christian, the irreligious non-Christian, are both asking this question of us. Look, what keeps you from doing horrible things? And then just asking for forgiveness for it. What keeps you from doing that? We shouldn't be surprised by that question because that's exactly how sin twists a truth. Sin takes a truth like God's grace and then bends it to a false conclusion. Our sin nature hears, Romans 5, verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, and our sin nature takes that truth and jumps to a false conclusion. Let's just continue to sin so that grace may increase all the more. That's our natural bent. It's our natural bent to swerve away from how truth really ought to change our lives. But Paul corrects our natural swerve with this, with another truth. Look at verses, uh, look at the end of verse 1. Are we to continue to sin so that grace may increase? Verse 2, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? There is a gospel truth about death that is now at work in our life. And it was symbolized in baptism. Verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Death. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you didn't know. Maybe you'd forgotten. But this is what baptism means. Baptism pictures our participation in Christ's death. This is why the person being baptized goes under the water. Going under the surface of the water is a picture of death, if there ever ever was one. Death awaits you if you stay too long underwater, right? Going underwater is a picture of us going into the grave. Matthew, Boston, in being baptized today, we're saying we identify ourselves with Jesus in his death. His death was for us. By faith, we've united ourselves to Christ at his cross, in his death. Baptism is a picture, therefore, that we are active participants in the gospel story. None of us were there when Christ was crucified on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. But in baptism, we're saying, in a very real way, we were. We were there. That death was for me. The Son of God is dying on that cross in my place, bearing my punishment. In baptism, we proclaim our participation in the central event of the gospel story, Christ's death. There's a second thing we're participating in, according to verse 4. 
First, baptism pictures our participation in Christ's death. Number two, baptism pictures our participation in Christ's life. Look at verse four. Verse four, therefore, having been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Life. In the gospel story, Jesus' death for sin is a climactic event. Darkness falls as Jesus absorbs God's wrath and drinks death's cup in our place. But there is a second climactic event in the gospel story. Jesus tastes death in our place, but he also defeats death in our place. On the third day, Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, the Scripture says. Every great story has this in it. It has a sudden, unexpected turn, a sudden turn, a moment of eucatastrophe. There's a word that Tolkien coined as well. He said, in English, we have the word catastrophe, a sudden, unexpected of turning things for the bad. You need a word that's the opposite, because it's in every good story, a sudden, unexpected turning of things for the good, a eucatastrophe. The great eucatastrophe in God's story is this. The resurrection. We had a catastrophe. God came to us and we crucified him. We killed him. But there's a sudden unexpected turn. This one who is dead defeated death. The one we killed came out of the grave. The greatest evil ever committed has now been turned on its head and is the greatest good for all mankind. In baptism, Matthew and Boston showed us today that they have participated in that eucatastrophe. They went down into the water, picturing death, but they didn't stay there. I didn't hold them down. I thought about it, but I didn't. There is a picture of death in baptism, but there is also a picture of life rising out of death, into life, into a new life, into a new way of life. Being united to Christ, both in death and life, means a new way of life for us as Christians, as believers. Parts of you will experience new life, while other parts of you will die. Parts of you should die. You should put them to death. In Christ, You should put to death your self-centeredness, your need for approval, your envy and greed. All these old things have been nailed to the cross, taken care of. Leave them there. Put them to death. And now walk in the newness of life. Live in a new way. Like those who are not their own because you've been bought with a price. You've been bought by the blood of Christ. Live like those who already have God's approval. You don't need the approval of others. You already have God's approval because your identity is now found in Christ, the perfect son. Live like it. Live like those who have been set free to be generous, 
because you believe you are just one mile away from glory, from inheriting all things. Walk in newness of life because baptism pictures your participation in Christ's life. Here's a third thing baptism symbolizes. Baptism pictures our participation in Christ's resurrection. Baptism pictures our participation in Christ's resurrection. We see that verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. We participate in the new birth, in new life in Christ right now. But the greater part of what that means is still yet to come. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says this, Beloved, we are children of God right now, but it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We are children of God right now. In this moment, every believer, you are a child of God, but... The fullness of what that means has not come yet. We do not see it now. Paul says here in verse 5 that if we have been united with Christ in his death, we shall certainly also follow after him in his resurrection. Baptism symbolizes this reality. One day you will die. One day this body will die. But death will not be the end. Death will not be the end of this body. Because my fate, your fate, has been united to Christ. To Christ's fate. Like God rose Jesus from the dead bodily, he will raise this perishable body imperishable. This mortal body, which now aches for days if I sleep wrong, in the wrong position, this mortal body will one day be raised immortal, never to die or ache again. Jesus is called the first fruit of the resurrection. He's the first. We will follow after him. His resurrection 2,000 years ago paves the way, opens the door for our resurrection at the end of God's story. His victory over the grave is given to us. We get to share in the spoils of his victory. This is a better ending. It's a better ending to the story of man's struggle with death than you can find anywhere else in any other story. Because here, this ending is not really the end, is it? Resurrection is not the end of the story. It's just the beginning. Jesus makes it where this life is only the cover and the title page. The real story is yet to come. Better than the immortality granted to Tolkien's elves, and far, far better than that of Twilight's vampires, uh, will be the immortality Jesus grants to us. The simplest believer one day will be an embodied being of such light and glory and joy 
that you would be tempted to bow down if you saw them here today. Keep that in mind. Your spouse, your friend, your roommate, one day will be like that. Treat them as what they will be. This is who we will be, completely unencumbered by sin. We will finally be who we were always meant to be. And guess what? Our relationships will be a thousand times better on that day than they ever were at their best in life. All these things are coming. A resurrection is coming. But even now, we can catch some glimpses and get some foretastes of it. We catch a glimpse of what's coming in this next aspect of baptism. We've seen this. We've seen baptism pictures our participation in Christ's death, in Christ's life, in Christ's resurrection. Fourth point is this. Baptism pictures our liberation from sin's slavery. Baptism pictures our liberation from sin's slavery. We see that in verses 6 and 7. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Jesus spoke a very hard truth when he said in John chapter 8, verse 34, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Is a slave to sin. Yes, you've done what you've most wanted to do, but the sin in your nature has influenced what you most wanted to do. You know doing that thing, responding in that way, going down that path is self-destructive, but you do it anyway. You hate the thing you're doing, but you do it anyway. Why? Because you are not completely free. Your desires drive you. Your appetites enslave you. You need a way of escape. A way of escape from yourself. Something like faking your own death is what you need. Faking your own death so you can get away. You can escape from slavery because your former master thinks you're dead. Paul says in baptism, we haven't faked our death. We have actually died. We have actually died. Our old desires don't hold full dominion over us anymore because we are different. We are a different person altogether. That old person, dead. He died. I now am a new person with new desires created in me through believing the gospel. That's what it means to be new, to have a new heart. You have new desires now. Instead of holding grudges like my old self would, I forgive. Why? Because I am now believing in God's great forgiveness toward me. Boy, it seems natural to forgive when I believe I've been forgiven so much. Instead of letting anger control me like my old self would, I set my anger aside because I am now believing in a God who has removed his anger from me and set it upon his son on the cross. Instead of letting envy propel 
my actions like my old self would, I am cultivating a heart of contentment because I'm now believing in a God who cares for me. He'll give me what's most for my good and his glory. He already gave his son for me. How could he withhold anything lesser that I need? These new desires push out the old ones. The new desires put to death the old ones. Sin no longer holds complete dominion over me because I have died. That's one of the things my baptism is meant to remind me of. I have died. Sin's dominion is no longer complete. There is a fifth and final uh, symbol that we see in baptism. We've seen baptism pictures our participation in Christ's death, in Christ's life, in Christ's resurrection, our liberation from sin slavery. Fifth and finally, baptism pictures our liberation from death's dark shadow. Our liberation from death's dark shadow. We see this in verses 8 through 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Death is no longer master over Jesus, but rather Jesus is master over death. Jesus didn't cheat death like a clever Sherlock Holmes or a resourceful Odysseus. Jesus didn't dodge death's sting somehow. He took it. He experienced it. Jesus went full on into the darkness, down the dragon's throat, and he conquered death from the inside. He tasted the full bitterness of death for us so that we need not taste death for ourselves. Not in the same way. In the gospel, Jesus removes the bitter sting of death so completely that now we need no longer fear death as a dark shadow ever on the horizon. Jesus transforms death for the believer from the darkness of utter loss into the daybreak of eternal brightness. Paul says now, for me to live is Christ and to die, that is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death is transformed from utter loss to greatest gain. This life isn't something that we hold on to now with a death grip, but something that we offer up like a fragrant sacrifice and offering. And in return, we receive back something far, far greater and far more beautiful. Tolkien pictured this reality for us in this memorable scene 
in The Return of the King. One of the main characters, I won't tell you who, one of the main characters awakes after being very near to death. And then he sees a friend who he long supposed was dead as well. And he exclaims, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I myself was dead. Is everything sad becoming untrue? Is everything sad becoming untrue? Church, that's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope pictured in baptism. Through our participation in Jesus' death and resurrection, one day everything sad becomes untrue. Everything broken will be mended. Everything lost will be restored. For the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And thus shall the true king always be known. J.R.R. Tolkien knew something about stories. Something better than any of us. He knew something about stories. He knew that great stories were about death. And he knew that the gospel story is the ultimate story about death. The ultimate story about death and about death's defeat. That's why Tolkien said this about the gospel. He said, There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true, and none which so many skeptical men have accepted as true based on its own merits. For the art of it has that supremely convincing tone of primary art that is rooted in creation itself. To reject it, to reject the gospel, either leads to sadness or to wrath. Don't go away sad this morning, wishing that there really was a Savior who could deal with death for you. There is, and He has. Don't walk away angry this morning, offended that you could never be good enough to recommend yourself to God. You can never be good enough to be your own Savior. That's a burden you were never meant to bear. Jesus has carried that burden for you. Don't walk away angry or sad this morning. Instead, walk away with joy in believing. Believing what is pictured in baptism. By faith, you can participate in the greatest story ever told. The story of death's defeat and humankind's relationship to God restored. May we all find our place in the great story that we've seen put on display today in baptism. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that every heart here would see, perhaps some for the first time, more clearly than ever, the gospel put on display. We've seen it this morning in baptism. We've heard it proclaimed from your word. May our hearts not turn away sad or angry. May we instead turn toward a Savior whose arms are extended toward us, whose victory over death can be our victory as well. 
He promises us eternal life. May we follow after Him. May we take up our cross, following after Him daily, dying to self, but living a life of joy and kindness and grace, following a Savior who has been full of such joy and kindness and grace in pursuing us. Lord, may you work this in every heart. May we be believing this gospel this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.